Section 7 of Dogmatic Theology, Soteriology by William G. T. Shedd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Regeneration, Part 2. 3. Prayer for the gift of the Holy Spirit, both as a convicting and a regenerating spirit, which is commanded by Christ in Luke 11, 9 and 13. I say unto you, Ask, and it shall be given you. If ye, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? That prayer for regenerating grace is a duty, and a privilege for the unregenerate man, is proved, a, by the fact that the Holy Spirit is promised generally under the gospel as a regenerating spirit. Ezekiel 36, 24, and 27, I will take you from among the heathen, and gather you out of all countries, and I will put my spirit within you. A new heart will I give you. Joel 2, 28-32, It shall come to pass that I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. This is quoted by Peter on the day of Pentecost. In accordance with these scriptures, the Westminster Confession teaches that God promises to give unto all those who are ordained to life His Holy Spirit, to make them willing and able to believe. All men are to call upon the name of the Lord for the gift of the Holy Spirit, thus promised, because no man has the right to assert that he is of the non-elect, or to affirm this of another man. As Christ's atonement is offered indiscriminately, so the Holy Spirit is offered indiscriminately, and this warrants every man in asking for what is offered. b. By the fact that a man must obtain the gift of the Holy Spirit as a regenerating spirit, before he can obtain it as a converting and sanctifying spirit. The Holy Ghost is not given as a converting and a sanctifying spirit until he has been given as a regenerating spirit. Regeneration is the very first saving work in the order, and this, therefore, is the very first blessing to be asked for. Make the tree good and his fruit good. Matthew 12.33 Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 3.3 no man has any warrant or encouragement to pray either for conversion or for sanctification before he has prayed for regeneration. Whoever, therefore, forbids an unregenerate man to pray for regenerating grace, forbids him to pray for any and all grace. In prohibiting him from asking God to create within him a clean heart, he prohibits him altogether from asking for the Holy Spirit. C. By the fact that the church is commanded to pray for the outpouring of the Spirit, upon unregenerate sinners in order to their regeneration. It is not supposable that God would command the church to pray for a blessing upon sinners which sinners are forbidden to ask for themselves. To recapitulate then, we say that the sinner's agency in respect to regeneration is in the antecedent work of conviction, not in the act of regeneration itself. The Holy Spirit does not ordinarily regenerate a man until he is a convicted man, until, in the use of the means of conviction under common grace, he has become conscious of his need of regenerating grace. To the person who inquires, how am I to obtain the new birth, and what particular thing am I to do respecting it? The answer is, find out that you need it, and that your self-enslaved will cannot originate it. And when you have found this out, cry unto God the Holy Spirit, create in me a clean heart, and renew within me a right spirit. And this prayer must not cease until the answer comes, as Christ teaches in the parable of the widow and the unjust judge, Luke 18, 1-8. When men are convicted of sin and utter helplessness, they are a people prepared for the Lord, Luke 1, 17. A sense of guilt and danger is a preparative to deliverance from it. A convicted man is a fit subject for the new birth, but an unconvicted man is not. 
A person who denies that he is a guilty sinner before God, or that sin deserves endless retribution, or who has no fears of retribution, is not prepared for the regenerating work of the Spirit. It is true that the Holy Spirit, who is free to work with means, without means, above means, and against means, can convict a sinner without his cooperation if he pleases. An utterly careless and thoughtless person is sometimes, by the power of God the Spirit, suddenly filled with remorse and terror on account of his sins. And sometimes a convicted person does his utmost to repress conviction, and get rid of moral anxiety, and the Divine Spirit will not permit him to succeed. But this is not to be counted upon. The sinner is commanded to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in the work of conviction. Quench not the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.19, is enjoined upon him as well as upon the believer. He must endeavour to deepen, not to dissipate, the sense of sin which has been produced in his conscience, or he is liable to be entirely deserted by the Spirit, and left to his own will, and be filled with his own devices. The sinner cannot cooperate in the work of regeneration, but he can in the work of conviction. This preparative of conviction does not make the sinner deserving of regeneration. God is not obliged to overcome the sinner's self-determination to sin, because the sinner knows that he cannot overcome it himself. The sinner's helplessness does not make him meritorious of salvation, because it is self-produced, but it does make him a suitable subject for the exercise of God's unmerited compassion in regenerating grace. One thing is important, therefore, in giving advice to an unregenerate person, namely to remind him of the danger of legality and self-righteousness. He must not suppose that by the use of the means of conviction, reading and hearing the word of God, avoiding all associations and practices that dissipate seriousness and quench conviction and prayer that God would apply the truth to his conscience, he is doing a meritorious work that obliges God to the regenerating act. He must not imagine that by doing his own part, as it is sometimes said, he can necessitate God to do his. This would make regeneration a debt, not grace. It would make it depend upon the sinner's action, and not, as St. Paul says, upon God's purpose according to election, Romans 9.11. The sinner must not require beforehand an infallible certainty that he will be regenerated as the condition of his using the means of common grace and conviction. He must not say to the Most High, I will do my part, provided thou wilt do thine. He must proceed upon a probability, remembering all the while that he merits not and has no claim to the new birth. After his best endeavours, he must look up as the leper did, saying, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. He must do as the preacher does in regard to the regeneration of his hearers. The preacher does not say to the Lord, I will preach thy word upon condition that thou will regenerate every one to whom I preach. But he does as Paul bade Timothy in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, 2 Timothy 2.25. And as the preacher has ample encouragement to preach because of the general promise that God's word shall not return to him void, so every convicted sinner has ample encouragement to look up for God's grace in Christ for the new heart and right spirit which come only from this source and are promised generally under the gospel dispensation. The language of Edwards accords with the scripture representations. Though God has not bound himself to anything that a person does while destitute of faith and out of Christ, there is great probability that in a way of hearkening to this counsel you will live, and that by pressing onward and persevering you will at last, as it were by violence, take the kingdom of heaven. Those of you who have not only heard the directions given, but shall, through God's merciful assistance, practice according to them, are those that probably will overcome. Of the same tenor is the following from Davies. Men say to us, You teach us that faith is the gift of God, and that we cannot believe of ourselves. Why then do you exhort us to it? How can we be concerned to endeavour that which is impossible for us to do? 
I answer to this, I grant that the premises are true, and God forbid that I should so much as intimate that faith is the spontaneous growth of corrupt nature, or that you can come to Christ without the Father's drawing you, but the conclusions you draw from these premises are very erroneous. I exhort and persuade you to believe in Jesus Christ, because it is while such means as preaching the gospel are used with sinners, and by use of them, that it pleases God to enable them to comply, or to work faith in them. I would therefore use those means which God is pleased to bless to this end. I exhort you to believe, in order to set you upon the trial to believe, for it is putting it to trial, and that only which can fully convince you of your own inability to believe, and till you are convinced of this you can never expect strength from God. I exhort you to believe, because sinful and enfeebled as you are, you are capable of using various preparatives to faith. You may attend upon prayer, preaching, and all the outward means of grace, with natural seriousness. You may endeavour to get acquainted with your own helpless condition, and, as it were, place yourself in the way of divine mercy. And though all these means cannot of themselves produce faith in you, yet it is only in the use of these means that you are to expect divine grace to work it in you. Never was it yet produced in one soul while lying supine, lazy, and inactive. Compare Owen, Works 2, 272 and following edition russell the speculative difficulties connected with the doctrine of regeneration arise from the fact that men put their questions and make objections from the viewpoint and position of the unconvicted sinner they deny that they are helpless sinners or they deny that sin deserves endless punishment or they deny that sin requires vicarious atonement in order to its remission a mind that is speculatively in this state is not prepared for regenerating grace. These are not the antecedents of regeneration. Such opinions as these must be given up, and scriptural views must be adopted before the Holy Spirit will create the new heart. Or even if there be no heterodoxy, yet if the orthodox truth be held in unrighteousness, if the person does not reflect upon the truth and makes no effort to know his guilt and danger, but lives on in thoughtlessness and pleasure this state of things must be changed. By a serious application to his own case of the law of God, the person must become an anxious inquirer as a preparative to regeneration. The questions about man's relation to regeneration will give no serious trouble to any convicted man. To anyone who honestly acknowledges he is a guilty and a helpless sinner, and seeks deliverance from the guilt and bondage of sin, the questions will then answer themselves. 1. It is objected that the prayer of the unregenerate is sinful. This proves too much because it would preclude any action whatever by the unregenerate man. The hearing of the word by the unregenerate is sinful, but the unregenerate is not forbidden to hear upon this ground. The thinking of the wicked like his ploughing is sin. All the acts of the unregenerate are sinful because none of them spring from supreme love to God, yet some of them are better preparatives for, or antecedents to, God's work of regeneration than others. Attendance upon public worship is better adapted to advance a man in the knowledge of his spiritual needs than attendance upon the theatre. Prayer is better adapted than prayerlessness to bring a blessing to the soul. Behold, he prayeth, was mentioned as a hopeful indication in the case of Saul of Tarsus. An act, says Owen, may be good as to the matter of it, though sinful as to the form, for example, hearing the word by the unregenerate, and an act may be bad both as to the matter and the form, for example, pleasure-seeking on the Sabbath by the unregenerate. The former act is to be preferred rather than the latter. The former act is positively commanded of God, the latter is positively forbidden. 
the Westminster Confession teaches that works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands, yet because they do not proceed from faith, are sinful, and cannot please God. And yet their neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing unto God than their performance of them. If the presence of sin in the soul is a reason why an unregenerate man may not pray for regenerating grace, then it is a reason why the regenerate man may not pray for sanctifying grace. A regenerate man's prayer is mixed with sin. If then a person may not pray until he is regenerated, neither may he pray until he is perfectly sanctified. If the existence of sin is a reason for not praying in one case, it is in the other. 2. It is objected, secondly, that only the prayer of faith is infallibly granted. But this is no reason why a prayer that will probably be granted should not be offered. Prayer for sanctification supposes previous regeneration. This is the prayer of faith and is heard in every instance. But it does not follow that the prayer for regeneration which God is able to answer, and which he encourages convicted sinners to hope that he will answer, should not be put up, because infallible certainty is not connected with the answer. Probability of an answer is good reason for asking for regenerating grace. The fact that the prayer of the unregenerate does not deserve an answer does not prove that God will not answer it. The prayer of the regenerate does not deserve an answer on the ground of merit. A. The first reason why prayer for sanctification is infallibly certain to be granted, while that for regeneration is not, is that God has bound himself by a promise in the former case, but not in the latter. The former is connected with a covenant, the latter is not. God has promised to sanctify every believer without exception who asks for sanctification, but he has not promised to regenerate every convicted sinner without exception who asks for regeneration. Regeneration is according to the purpose of God in election, and election does not depend upon any act of the creature, be it prayer or any other act. Consequently, the convicted sinner's prayer cannot infallibly secure regeneration, as the believer's prayer can sanctification. Whenever regenerating grace be implored, the sovereignty of God in its bestowment must be recognized. The words of St. Paul apply here. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, 2 Timothy 2.25. The words of the prophets also, Let every man cry mightily unto God, who can tell if God will turn and repent, that we perish not. Jonah 3.9. Rend your heart and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, who knoweth if he will return and repent, and leave a blessing behind him. Joel 2.13-14. The words of the leper must always be a part of the prayer for regenerating grace. If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Mark 1.40. When it is said that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, Joel 2.32, Acts 2.21, Romans 10.13, the prayer of the convicted may be meant, and the general fact is that it will be answered. Footnote. Compare, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me, and my word shall not return unto me void. These texts do not mean that every single individual shall be saved, but describe the general and common effect of the gospel. End footnote. Or the prayer of the regenerate for sanctification may be meant. Whosoever shall believingly and penitently call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. B. A second reason why the answer to prayer for regeneration is optional and sovereign, while that for sanctification is not, is that in the latter instance it is a means to the end, while in the former it is not. The prayer for sanctification is a part of the process of sanctification, but the prayer for regeneration is not a part of regeneration. 
prayer as a divinely appointed means infallibly secures its end, but prayer as an appointed antecedent, and not a means, is accompanied with probability, not absolute certainty. Because God has not bound himself by a covenant to hear the prayer of every convicted sinner without exception, it by no means follows that he does not hear such a prayer, and that it is useless for such a person to pray. He has heard the cry of multitudes of this class. It is his general rule under the gospel economy to hear this cry. The highest probability of success, therefore, attends the prayer of an anxious and convicted person for regenerating grace. This is ample encouragement for him to call upon the merciful and mighty God for what he needs, namely a heart of flesh in place of the stony heart. It is not true that God never granted the prayer of an unregenerate man. Such men in peril have called upon God to spare their lives and have been heard. This is taught in Psalm 107, verses 10 to 14. Convicted men from a sense of danger and the fear of the wrath to come have prayed for the salvation of their souls from perdition and God has saved them. In such cases God has granted the petition not because it was a holy one or because it merited to be granted, but because the blessing was needed and because of his mercy to sinners in Christ. Calvin mentions the prayers of Jotham, Judges 9.20, and of Samson, Judges 16.28, as instances in which the Lord complied with some prayers which nevertheless did not arise from a calm or well-regulated heart. Whence it appears that prayers not conformable to the rules of the divine word are nevertheless efficacious. But in addition to the fact that the prayer of a convicted sinner may have an effect upon God and be answered favorably, it also has an effect on the person himself and prepares for the regenerating act of God. No man can study the divine word and receive legal illumination from it without having some sense of danger awakened and giving utterance to it in prayer. Even if the prayer be only the cry of fear and is not accompanied with filial trust and humble submission, it is of use. The prayer, by its very defects, prepares for the new birth by showing the person his need of it. The person in distress asks for a new heart. The answer does not come immediately. The heart is displeased, is perhaps made more bitter and rebellious. By this experience, the Holy Spirit discloses to the unregenerate man more and more of the enmity of the carnal mind and the impotence of the self-enslaved will. This goes towards preparing him for the instantaneous act of regeneration. It is, says Owen, in no way inconsistent that faith should be required previously unto the receiving of the Spirit as a spirit of sanctification though it be not so as he is the author of regeneration. And the reason he assigns is that in the instance of sanctification prayer is a means, while in the instance of regeneration prayer is not a means but a preparative. He discusses the point in the following manner. May a person who is yet unregenerate pray for the spirit of regeneration to effect that work in him, for whereas as such he is promised only to the elect, such a person not knowing his election seems to have no foundation to make such a request upon. Answer. 1. Election is no qualification on our part, which we may consider and plead in our supplications, but is only the secret purpose on the part of God of what himself will do and is known to us only by its effects. 2. Persons convinced of sin and a state of sin may and ought to pray that God, by the effectual communications of his Spirit unto them, would deliver them from that condition. This is one way whereby we flee from the wrath to come. 3. The especial object of their supplications herein is sovereign grace, goodness and mercy, as disclosed in and by Jesus Christ. 
such persons cannot indeed plead any especial promise as made unto them, but they plead for the grace and mercy declared in the promises as indefinitely proposed unto sinners. It may be that they can proceed no further in their expectations, but unto that of the prophet, who knoweth if God will come and give a blessing. Joel 2.14 Yet is this a sufficient ground and encouragement to keep them waiting at the throne of grace? So Paul, after he had received his vision from heaven, continued in great distress of mind, praying until he received the Holy Ghost. Acts 9, 9 and 17. 4. Persons, under such convictions, have really sometimes the seeds of regeneration communicated unto them, and then, as they ought to, so they will continue in their supplications for the increase and manifestation of it. When our Lord, John 14.17, asserts that the world cannot receive the Holy Spirit because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, the reference is to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of sanctification. Christ is speaking of him as the Comforter who augments and strengthens already existing spiritual life. But if the world, that is the unregenerate, are incapable of receiving the Holy Ghost in his regenerating office, they cannot be regenerated. There is the highest encouragement in the word of God to pray for the regenerating grace of the Holy Ghost. It is a duty enjoined upon all men without exception, like that of hearing the word. If ye, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? Luke 11.14 Thou, Lord, art plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. Psalm 86.5 the Lord is nigh to all them that call upon him. Psalm 145.18 The Lord is rich unto all that call upon him. Romans 10.12 Seek ye the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Isaiah 55.6 I will that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. 1 Timothy 2.8 Behold, he prayeth. Acts 9.11 Thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh come. Psalm 65.2. These and other similar texts relate to spiritual gifts. They invite and command men universally and indiscriminately to ask God for the Holy Spirit in any of his operations, as the first and best of his gifts. Prayer, being one special part of religious worship, is required by God of all men. Westminster Confession 21.3. While regeneration is a sovereign act of God, according to election, it is an encouraging fact both for the sinner and the preacher of the word that God's regenerating grace is commonly bestowed where the preparatory work is performed. This is the rule under the gospel dispensation. He who reads and meditates upon the word of God is ordinarily enlightened by the Holy Ghost, perhaps in the very act of reading or hearing or meditating. While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word, Acts 10.44. He who asks for regenerating grace may be regenerated, perhaps in the act of praying. God has appointed certain human acts whereby to make ready the heart of man for the divine act. Without attentive reading and hearing of the word and prayer, the soul is not a fit subject for regenerating grace. By fitness is not meant holiness or even the faintest desire for holiness, but a conviction of guilt and danger, a sense of sin and utter impotence to everything spiritually good. Such an experience as this breaks up the fallow ground to employ the scripture metaphor. Jeremiah 4.3, Hosea 10.12 When the Holy Ghost finds this preparation, then he usually intervenes with his quickening agency. The effect of prevenient grace in conviction is commonly followed by special grace in regeneration. 
the fact of the outward call is a reason both for the sinner and the minister of the word for expecting the inward call. Yet regeneration, after all the preparation that has been made by conviction and legal illumination, depends upon the sovereign will of God. The wind bloweth where it listeth, so is every one that is born of the Spirit. John 3, 8. Regeneration rests upon God's election and not upon man's preparative acts, upon special grace and not upon common grace. It follows consequently that the unregenerate man should be extremely careful how he deals with common grace. If he suppresses conviction of sin and thus nullifies common grace, then God may withdraw all grace. This was the case with some of the Jews. For they, being willingly ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, did not submit themselves to the righteousness of God, and because of unbelief were broken off. Romans 10.3.11.20 The same is true of some nominal Christians. God has sovereignty and liberty in respect to regenerating grace. When a person has stifled conviction, God sometimes leaves him to his self-will forever. Yet observation shows that the Holy Spirit suffers long and is very patient and forbearing with convicted men, that he does not hastily leave them even when they disobey his admonitions, but continues to strive with them and finally brings them to faith and repentance. Upon this general fact in the economy of redemption, that the right use of common grace is followed by regenerating grace, both the sinner and the preacher should act. In this respect, both are like other men. The farmer has no stronger motive than that of probable success for sowing grain, the merchant for sending out ships, the manufacturer for erecting factories. Salvation is in the highest degree probable for any person who earnestly and diligently uses common grace and the means of common grace. It is to be confidently expected that a convicted man will be made a new man in Christ Jesus. Every lost man ought to be thankful for such an encouraging probability. But to insist beforehand upon infallible certainty, and especially a certainty that is to depend upon his own action, is both folly and sin. It is folly to suppose that so weak and fickle a faculty as the human will can make anything an infallible certainty, and it is sin to attempt to divide the glory of regenerating the human soul between the Holy Spirit and the soul itself. 3. It is objected thirdly that to pray for regeneration is to delay faith and repentance. The sinner is commanded immediately to believe on Christ and turn from his sin with godly sorrow, but praying for regeneration is dallying with the use of means. It is an excuse for procrastination. To this it is to be replied, a. That prayer for regeneration is a prayer that God the Holy Spirit would work instantaneously upon the heart and would immediately renew and incline the will. There would be force in this objection if the sinner were taught that there are means of regeneration and were exhorted to supplicate God to regenerate him at some future time through his own use of these means. But he who truly prays for regenerating grace despairs of all agency in the use of means and precludes all procrastination by entreating an immediate and instantaneous act on the part of God by which he shall, this very instant, be delivered from the death and bondage of sin and be brought into the life and liberty of the gospel. He implores God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, to shine in his heart, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. He asks the Son of God, who quickeneth whom he will, John 5, 21, to enliven his spirit, now dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 1. 
Consequently, prayer for regenerating grace is an evidence that the convicted person has come to know that the word, sacraments, and prayer, all the means of grace, are inadequate to reanimate the soul and make it alive to righteousness. It is not until he has discovered that legal conviction, legal illumination, resolutions to reform, external reformation, reading and hearing the word, and prayer itself cannot change the heart, that he leaves all these behind him and begs God immediately and instantaneously to do this needed work in his soul. The prayer for regenerating grace is in truth the most energetic and pressing act that the sinner can perform. It is the farthest removed of any from procrastination. It is an immediate act on the part of the sinner, and it entreats God to do an instantaneous work within him. In this manner, prayer for the instantaneous gift of regenerating grace harmonizes with the gospel call to immediate faith and repentance. Faith and repentance naturally and necessarily result from regeneration. Whoever is regenerated will believe and repent. Footnote. The regenerate child, youth and man, believes and repents immediately. The regenerate infant believes and repents when his faculties will admit of the exercise and manifestation of faith and repentance. In this latter instance, regeneration is potential or latent faith and repentance. End footnote. To pray, therefore, for instantaneous regeneration is virtually to pray for instantaneous faith and repentance, and vice versa. He who prays, Help thou mine unbelief take away the stony heart and give the heart of flesh, prays that God would renew and powerfully determine the will, which is the definition of regeneration. At the same time, prayer for regenerating grace must not be substituted for the act of faith and repentance. The direction is, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the biblical answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? But when the convicted person discovers that the act of faith is hindered and prevented by the blindness of his understanding and the bondage of his will to sin and asks if he may implore the enlightening and quickening energy of the Holy Spirit to persuade and enable him to embrace Jesus Christ freely in the gospel. Shorter Catechism 31, he is to be answered in the affirmative. In imploring the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, he is striving to enter in at the straight gate. He is endeavouring to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The act of faith in the blood of Christ, in its own nature, is simple and easy. My yoke is easy and my burden is light, Matthew 11.30. But considered in reference to the pride and self-righteousness of the natural heart, faith is impossible without regeneration. Hence the frequent statement in Calvinistic creeds that man needs to be persuaded and enabled to this act. End of section 7